I'll invite you to turn to the back of your book of praise to the Nicene Creed, found on page 494, the Nicene Creed. We won't confess those words since we've already confessed our Christian and undoubted faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. But this also is another creed that we hold to, the ancient creed of Nicaea, written in 325 AD. We're doing a series right now in Providence on this creed. It's Trinitarian, just like the other ones are. I want to read just a portion of it, mainly the, the middle section, which speaks about the second person of the Trinity, his person in his work, and the way that's described phrase by phrase. So we read there that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Draw your attention especially to that one phrase there, that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. After the message, we'll sing from hymn 67 and stanzas 1 to four. 67 stanzas 1 to 4. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you ask the question of someone on the street today, what is the ascension? What would Winnipeggers say? What would professing Christians say? You know, most people know about his birth, that yearly reminder, December 25th. Christ's ascension gets a lot, Christ's resurrection rather gets a lot of attention with the annual arrival of Easter for many Christians. However, Christ has ascended, doesn't come with that same kind of force as Christ has risen. That's partly due to the fact that most churches have eliminated Ascension Day from their calendar. There's also a prevailing ignorance of what the ascension means. Christ has risen, but where is he? What's he doing right now? Is he on the sidelines somewhere? To use a hockey analogy, Has he been benched? No longer an active player waiting to come back. Most Christians seem to act and behave that he has been benched. He rose, ascended, but we so often take that for granted. But historically, all Christians in all places and in all times have given much weight to Christ's ascension because of its significant implications for the world, but also for us as Christians. 
Christ's ascension with all that it entails is so important for Christians that the 19th century Dutch pastor George Bethune wrote these words, except we understand and personally apprehend the doctrine of this great fact, it is impossible to enjoy the best comforts of our holy religion or to acquire the divine strength essential for the perseverance of our faith. Rather bold words. And it's one that we need to be reminded of more than ever in the times that we're living in. The English reformer John Owen called it the great foundation of the church's hope and consolation of the world. And that's so true. So consider God's word under that theme. He ascended into heaven. Three points for this afternoon's message. First of all, where he went. Secondly, what is he doing? And number three, or third point, why does it matter? So first of all, where he went. Well, it's a straightforward black and white reality that Scripture reveals to us. It's what this text in Daniel describes to us about the Son of Man, verse 13 of Daniel 7. Verse 13 says, I was watching in the night seasons, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This is a vision that was rather puzzling to Daniel because it combines one person with both human and divine traits. He not only, he's not only like the Son of Man, that is, he appears to be simply a mortal human being. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the phrase Son of Man often distinguishes mere mortals from the Lord. The Bible often uses anthropomorphic language. That is, it describes God in human terms. And so, for example, the Ancient of Days, sitting on the throne with his white hair, he he wears clothing, he has a, a human shape. Who is the Ancient of Days, is the question. And maybe our children know who this is. This is describing the Father in heaven. At the same time, however, coming on the clouds is one who appears like the Son of Man. This coming on the clouds is a symbol of clear divine authority. In the Old Testament, God alone rides the clouds as if it is a chariot. What's more, the Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and he is given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. Well, who is this Son of Man, and what is this picturing for us? Well, obviously, this is picturing for us Jesus and the place of authority given to him. But the movement here, the way that we need to understand this is, the movement is upwards, not downwards, Upwards. This is where the ascended Lord has gone to his Father's immediate presence for us. 
higher than the heavens, above all heavens, that is, to the very highest seat of the majesty on high, not only entering the glory, but himself glorified in it. In John 13, verse 1, Jesus said that the hour had come for him to depart. Referring to his return to heaven, Jesus later prayed, I glorified you on earth, O Father, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, the the disciple, the first disciples, had to learn that Jesus was the Son of Man who came to serve. They had to learn about his departure. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke end on, him leaving. What Daniel is depicting here is not his departure. It's his arrival. Daniel's hearers were under intense persecution for their faith, just like the hearers of the book of Revelation. And the lesson was reversed. They needed to be reminded that Jesus, the Son of Man, is glorified. To put it simply, Christ's first coming was to serve. The return of Christ will not be the same as his first coming. His second coming will be to judge. Presently, he is in heaven, not on the sidelines. He has not been benched. He hasn't gone into heaven to be retired and to receive his pension. He's the king. His cry from the cross, it is finished, meant that he accomplished salvation for us. And all authority has been given to him. This, central, this is the central teaching of our Christian faith. It's so central, when you think about this, it's so central that we find it within all three of our ecumenical creeds. It's also found in our three forms of unity, in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 18, and in the Belgic Confession. It's also in other confessions that are written throughout history, in the Augsburg Confession of Faith, as well as the Second Helvetic Confession. It's in the 39 Articles of the Church of England, Furthermore, in the Scots Confession, and of course, the Westminster Standards, the larger and shorter catechism, and Confession of Faith. This was the reality or historical fact by which the New Testament church functioned. Everything that the article, or everything rather that the apostles said and wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit assumed this reality. And that's why that statement that we read earlier is so important. 
It's impossible for us to enjoy the best comforts of our faith or to acquire divine strength essential for our perseverance except we understand it and personally apprehend this doctrine, this great fact that Jesus has ascended. Now, is that true of you? More importantly, is it true of the church? Have we apprehended the ascension of Christ? Has Redeemer, Winnipeg, or has she been living and acting in ignorance of this doctrine? Has she been blinded to the reality that she's presently under? Well, it leads us to our second point. What is he doing? Oh, there's much that he's doing. So much so that it would be, it would take a lot of this afternoon to talk about that. But there are at least two things that we can mention. One is his cosmic rule. And secondly, the work that he's doing in the church. First, his cosmic rule. He's in heaven, not just for the church, but he is ruling over the universe. All authority has been given to him. He is bringing about a new heavens and a new earth. The apostle Peter said, heaven must receive Christ until the time of the restoration of all things. Acts 3, verse 21. And note again the words that we read from earlier. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. It says there, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is what Jesus is doing now. He's putting all nations under subjection to him. He's defeating his enemies. He's conquering his foes. And that's true for us today. This vision of the Son of Man in Daniel is in the midst of this vision of the four beasts. Some of them had human faces. They're persecutors of the church. Some of them are terrorists who blow up innocent people on busy subways. Some of them take the form of human institutions, like economic systems, communism, treats human beings as if they were materials that only exist for the purpose of furthering the interest of the state. Even greedy capitalism can treat employees like commodities to be used for a while and then cast away. The world is filled with problems and brokenness. All this being due to the curse of sin, such as the case with AIDS, cancer, child poverty, slavery, warfare. It includes viruses. And yes, man-made restrictions and rules. That's the age that we live in now. 
But meditate on this fact for a thousand years. This age is marching toward its end as opposed to the glorious and eternal age to come. That which Christ has brought about because of his ascension. And what a perspective that gives us. It helps us to look at our present troubles. Even to the, to the point where we can utter a sanctified, so what? You know, we've been dealing with these restrictions for a year. What's that in comparison to Christ's eternal reign? It's not that it has been without its injustices and without its problems. But Christ is reigning. He's sovereign. Hasn't he been with the church before in times of persecution? Has he ever abandoned his people? What about when saints were imprisoned? Did that stop the word to go out? That puts our, pers- our troubles into perspective. This time period is going to come to an end. Christ is ruling. And he's got this. So let's not stop getting worked up all the time. And that's true for the political realm as well. Mr. Trudeau is not in charge. He's not going to be in power forever. There's going to be a change. There might be a change with a snap election, as many are predicting. We don't know that, but whatever happens, whoever takes over, we're not to put our trust in princes. And that's not only true federally, it's true provincially. Premier Pallister and Dr. Rusin are not in charge. They're responsible before Christ for their actions and decisions. Christ has dominion over them. His kingdom is not going to be destroyed. We might say, well, it doesn't seem that way to us. And yet we can't interpret the word of God today by what the Winnipeg Free Press says. Or by what CTV or CBC are reporting. Our understanding of our present time is not through the National Geographic channel or through Netflix. Some documentary that, you know, exposes Christianity as being false. Today we live in a world of terrifying beasts. But we shall not live here forever. There will be a day when all wrongs will be set right, when tyrants are dethroned, and when this broken world will be fixed. And that includes Satan himself, that great beast. He's going to be bound and cast into, in the chains of everlasting fire forever. As the second Helvetic Confession puts it, And from heaven, this same Christ will return in judgment when wickedness will be at its greatest in the world and when the Antichrist, having corrupted true religion, 
will fill up all things with superstition and impiety and will cruelly lay waste the church with bloodshed and flames. But Christ will come again to claim his own and by his coming to destroy the Antichrist and to judge the living and the dead. Goes on to say, we don't know when that will be. But when it is, all things, all those who will be alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And all the faithful will be caught up to meet Christ in the air. That's his cosmic rule. But he's also gone. That brings us to our second thought here. He's gone to prepare a place for us. As the Lord said directly to his disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Christ did go away for that very purpose. He's absent from us physically, but he's present with us spiritually. So that we can say with Lord's Day 18 that he's never absent from us. That's an encouragement to to us. When we're doubting, we're struggling, we're not certain about what the next step is going to be in this ever-changing world, the Lord will always preserve his church. He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And he's purchased her with his own blood. His Holy Spirit is present with her so that she, as his bride, will be presented to her without spot or blame. Our third thought is, why does all this matter? There are many reasons why it does matter. The benefits are many. One, when Christ ascended to his Father's right hand, the Father verified the work of his Son. That final payment for sin was received. Christ is now our advocate in heaven. So whenever we pray, he intercedes for us. Two, when Jesus ascended, his eternal reign over all his enemies began. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with his angels, authorities and powers subject to him. Three, we can always be assured that he is with us now in times of sorrow. As 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, because of Christ's ascension, we can be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And as we keep that in mind, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with us, with him rather, into his presence. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen 
are eternal. Are eternal. For Christ has also sent his spirit to us so that we seek those things where Christ is seated, looking to him who is above, and not the things of this earth. In other words, we live in light of this ascension. Our ethics, our morals, our lifestyle are to reflect that our Savior, who wears our nature and has called us to, get, to live a godly life, equips us. We don't live outside of his gaze. He sees all that we do and say, the good and the evil, and he calls us to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Seek those things which are above where Christ is seated. And then five, when Christ ascended, he empowered the church to accomplish its mission. We can focus our attention on the calling we have, which is the Great Commission, which is why he reigns. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, writing about Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the Apostle Paul said, God the Father put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The church is to mimic the Savior. We imitate him in this world, bearing his name and appointed by his spirit to be prophets, priests, and kings. And so consider the essential article of our Christian faith that has been confessed through every age of the church. Are you living in light of the church's confession? Or have you forgotten? Well, Satan is doing all that he can to tempt us to forget about Jesus as king. He uses a thousand tricks to do it. To try to hide our present awareness of where Jesus went, what he's doing, and why it's important. Let's not forget, though, what we believe. Let's be like Stephen, right before he was stoned, who looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus at the right hand of God. The Bible points us to pictures like this, like Daniel's vision and like the vision of Stephen, so that we have that vision settled in our minds and can rest, and can rest confidently, knowing that Jesus our Savior is King over all things. To Him be the glory. Amen.